Amen. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim. Well, we could use that every now and then, couldn't we? Especially in this season of pre-election time. Thank you, Kristen, for playing that. Well, it's good to be with you. I'm Kurt Parker, and this is a time where we open the word and study it. And what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Is what we're going to do now. But before we do that, if you have a little one who is through grade four, and you would like them to be in an age-appropriate service downstairs, they are welcome to be dismissed at this time to the foyer. Teachers will meet them there. Just remember to pick them up when we're all done. If you turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have been working our way verse by verse through this marvelous letter from Paul. We've entitled it God's Plan for a Healthy Church. It is going to include the book of 2 Corinthians as well as a lot of selected scriptures as we go verse by verse and compare scripture with scripture, which is our habit to understand fully what the Lord would have us to know. In particular, as we've got into this second half, if you will, second, uh, the uh, three of a third uh, portion of this book, we've started to come into the conduct in the church. And when we say that, really, we're just talking about what goes on in the assembly together. So Paul has talked about a number of things that were in general, attitudes that were there perhaps, things that were troubling the church. But as we, particularly as we moved into chapter 11, we started talking about what happens when the assembly meets together. And so Paul's going to take some of those things and make them uh, come to the forefront because there's some problems. But what I'd like to do, if we could, because this is a new section, so as our habit, we're going to lay some groundwork and some context so we know uh, where we are here as Paul uh, begins to address this issue. I'd like to preserve our time this morning and read. We're going to read the first 31 verses. I know that's a lot, but it really is the thought there. And so I'd just like you to read it. Of course, the Holy Spirit goes to work as we read His Word, begins to teach us and equip us as He wishes so that we're prepared for every good work. So let's do that now. 1 Corinthians 12, 1. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in several of the seats around you. Or read in your copy that you read and memorize, and I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together. Paul starts this way, now concerning spiritual gifts. So there's a whole change now uh, in thought process, and things that are going on. We're talking about spiritual gifts. Brethren, so who's the target? Those are other what? Believers. Those are believers. These are people in the church. So Paul identifies. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Verse 3. Therefore... I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 5. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. Verse 6. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Verse 10, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Verse 12, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, 
And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 13. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. Verse 15. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. Verse 16. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Verse 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? Verse 20, but now there are many members, but one body. Verse 21, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Verse 23, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and on our less presentable members become much more presentable. Verse 24, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Verse 25. So that there, are no, there, there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Verse 28, and God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Verse 29, are, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? Verse 30, all do not have the gift of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Verse 31, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Let's stop right there. Now, you will remember, of course, as we have studied this letter, Paul planted this church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. He was with Silas and Timothy. He left them in Berea. He went on by himself to Athens and then to Corinth, and while he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him there, he met Aquila and Priscilla, believers, who had come uh, there from Rome. Paul worked with them, supported himself, focused his attention then at the arriving of uh, Silas and Timothy on the synagogue. Now, once the Jews kicked him out of there, he was put up in a house of a believer named Titus Justus, and that was right next to the synagogue, which was, I'm sure, no small source of irritation to the Jews. And from there, he led Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and his whole family to the Lord, which I'm sure caused all kinds of trouble there in Corinth. And Paul was afraid, and the Lord had to come to him and say, hey, I have many people in the city, don't be afraid, and continue this work. So Paul was uh, at, actively involved in starting a church. And so after he led Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and the whole family to the Lord, that became quite a little movement in the city, and people heard about what was going on. And so some came to hear him, and they heard the story, and they heard Paul, and they came to faith, and the little church was planted, and it continued to grow. 
Paul spent 18 months there. The scriptures say that Paul passed down traditions, which is in order to say he firmly established the church in correct doctrine. He had to endure a lot of frustration and a lot of stress from the Jews, but he steadfastly labored there, working to take care of his own needs, and when he left the church, he left it on a firm foundation. And we know that later Apollos came and began to fill where he had left off. And as we have illustrated, not long after Paul left, though, some serious problems cropped up in the Corinthian church, and they were so serious that Paul had to write to them and deal with them. And the question always comes up, how did Paul find out about the problems? And as we've seen, because he's separated from them, and they they don't have emails and no texts and all that stuff, Paul has several sources to keep him current on the issues facing the church. And of course, the Corinthian church was not the only church that Paul was concerned about. After talking about his physical challenge, ministry about uh, beatings and about crossing the rivers and being in, in the sea uh, for several nights and all the things that he went through and, and uh, dangers from his countrymen and dangers from bandits and all that kind of stuff. He said this in Second uh, Corinthians eleven twenty eight. apart from such external things, here it is, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So not just Corinth was on Paul's mind, but every church that Paul had been in, involved in planting. So that's a lot of things that came to him and, and, and were of a concern to him. And then Paul says this, who's weak without my being weak? So if someone's having trouble in some church and Paul hears about it, he is burdened about that. And any person who served in in the ministry of an elder knows that feeling. Who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? And so Paul's always, as he hears about what's going on, he's concerned about all these things. So the concern of all the churches is on him. The concern for Corinth, of course, is on him. And uh, so uh, the concerns and problems in the church was a source of continuing pressure for Paul. But in Corinth, Paul had some sources that kept his concerns informed. And we have some keys in 1 Corinthians that tell us who those people were. And we looked at the first source, and that was from 1 Corinthians 11, 12. 1 Corinthians 1, 11 and 12, rather. For I have been informing concerning you, informed concerning you, brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So Paul had 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 a... Uh, a group come to him and informed him, hey, there's some stuff going on in the church, it's not good, um, could you please address it? And so he was informed there were some quarrels, and Paul says, now I mean uh, this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, kind of a personality cult going on there. I, I, I walk with Christ, so this is how he did it. I was with Peter, and Peter did it this way, and you know, I was with Apollos, and Apollos is doing it this way, and I'm of Paul, and all that. And so Paul had to deal with it. It just showed just really a selfishness, a self-centeredness, a, 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 you know, a uh, I am no better than you kind of thing, and Paul had to deal with it. But he found out about that with some group, a group that had come. So after leaving uh, the pastorate in Corinth, some friends and leaders from the church came to see him and told him about the problems. Now the second source we saw was in chapter 7, and you remember this. Uh, Paul says, now concerning the things about which you what? You wrote. So obviously he received some kind of written transmission from the church, perhaps it was uh, Chloe's people who came and gave it to him and, and made sure that he uh, knew what was going on. Perhaps it was this next group, though, First uh, Corinthians chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. Paul says this, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, Acacius, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit, and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. So perhaps they received a letter from Chloe's people, perhaps he received a letter uh, from these folks, perhaps he received a letter from the church that we don't know how it arrived with Paul, but regardless, 
these three men could have been the source for Paul so he could understand what the problems were in Corinth. And they certainly came and, and reported all that was going on. So from those three sources, Paul undoubtedly receives the information he needs to write this letter we acknowledge as the first Corinthian letter and addresses these issues. So from whatever source he received the question, the questions had to do with, very important, the question had to do with being spiritual. Okay, and that's your first stop in your notes. The questions had to do with being spiritual. We're going to see right away that what he's addressing. Now, it probably went like this, as whether he received it in the form of a letter, whether he received it uh, just speaking with some who had come from the church. It probably went something like this. You know, Paul, could you please clarify for us how we can determine whether someone's under the control of the Holy Spirit? Or maybe something like this. You know, we have a lot of different things going on in our assembly when we meet together. What should be going on, and what should it sound like, and what should it look like? So as you read through this section, you realize that second one perhaps is even more closely related to what was asked. You can get the idea of what the question was as Paul begins to answer. He talks about chaos and all the kinds of stuff that's going on. So you can really kind of sense that whoever it was, however, whether it was by a letter or by just a word of mouth, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. When we meet together, Paul, it's kind of a mess. And what should really be going on, and what should it sound like, and what should it look like? And so Paul begins to answer that question in a very pragmatic way. Uh, Paul knows uh, their background, their pagan background. He knows what they brought into the church. He knows that salt of the church in a number of different areas uh, before we get to this topic. So he knows they've experienced all kinds of things in pagan worship. They've experienced ecstatic utterances and words of wisdom from oracles. And so they've, on their ears, they understand from a pagan perspective what that's supposed to sound like. He knows they're confused, you know, they're confusing the old life and the new life. He knows they're probably unredeemed people in their midst. You know, they've, they've made it clear, you know, we've, we've seen that the assembling of themselves is really fraught with problems. We saw factions, we saw, diver, you know, divergences from uh, each other in opinion. Paul says, be of the same mind for crying out loud. Don't just keep, uh, you know, carrying on with what you want. He's seen all kinds of selfishness and complaining and all that kind of stuff. So we know that there's some issues there. And so these are going to be part, if you will, of, of uh, church worship life. And so, so he's going to straighten this out so they can bring some order to their meetings. Now, in 1 Corinthians, if you remember, uh, verses 4 through 7, Paul has already looked at uh, the blessings that they have in Christ. And he's also, he's indicated that there is uh, some things that they have and they have in full. And he says, remember this when we went through it, he says, because he wants to start with something positive in the letter. He says this, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus. So he's addressing the fact that they've received this ministry of salvation. He understand what it means to be saved. Verse 5 says that in everything you were enriched in him, everything. It wasn't any part of your life, he says, in this church plant, because he was there, that wasn't enriched. In all speech, and we looked at that in depth, and we won't go back in again. In all knowledge, they have everything they need to speak, the, the proclamation of the gospel, they have all the knowledge they need to tell about what Christ has done, all speech, all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, they were truly believers. He understood that they were, they confirmed they were truly believers, they confessed Christ as Lord, and so no question about this, he's talking to a group of believers. Now, verse 7, so that you're, and here it is, not lacking in any gift. Already indicated that... Um, uh, you're not lacking in any gift. You have what you need, awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we're going to see over the next several weeks, spiritual gifts that Paul's going to talk about here are real gifts. You don't have them apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit. 
They come as a result of the indwelling Holy Spirit that occurs at salvation. They're given to the redeemed person to work in harmony with other spiritual gifts, given to other believers to benefit the body of Christ, edify the church, and make the Holy Spirit known. Okay, these are real gifts. They have a real purpose. They're given to a redeemed person. They work in harmony with other spiritual gifts. They're given to other believers to the benefit of the body of Christ, to edify the church, and to make the Holy Spirit known. And so these are the reasons, this is the reason why they're given, and they are real gifts. And Paul said, you know, you don't lack in any of them. You have them to the full. So, Paul's already indicated that they were beneficiaries of gifts, benefits from God as a result of being born again. They weren't lacking in any of their gifts within their assembly. They had them all. Uh, they, they were not confined to any one class of people, uh, but extended to every class, male, female, young, old. And remembering that the church was at its beginning, when Paul makes this statement, you have all the gifts, uh, you, you're, you're, you have everything in full, you don't lack in anything. That's really an extra, extraordinary phenomenon, if you think about it. If Paul remembers this is 18 months is there, they have all the gifts. They have, uh, they've been blessed with everything, they're enriched in everything in him, all speech, all knowledge. And so Paul says, listen, you have what you need. And he's passed on to them the traditions. They understand what's supposed to be going on. And so he is, uh, because the background, though, in the cults, it was likely that some of them had spoken in tongues. And they were, when they were pagans, you know, they, they, uh, their experience of what being spiritually controlled uh, in their background was, was not compatible with what should have been going on inside, inside the, uh, in the church. Now, the Greek playwright, Aristophanes talks about the tongue of Bacchus. Now, these folks probably would have understood the tongue of Bacchus, which is uh, the tongue of, of Bacchus is a form of communication which uh, some who were participating in the Bacchanalian feast would exhibit. Uh, they, uh, it was the tongue of the god called the tongue of the god or the golden tongue, unknown to the other revelers. What he, they were saying was unknown, but they would speak in some ecstatic speech. Dionysian cult of Apollo was also known for ecstatic utterances of their followers, uh, speaking in some unknown form of speech, and, and its oracles were the ones who communicated truth uh, from God. So they had some background in what it looked like to be spiritual. They had some background in what it looked like to have what if they would consider the spirit of the God moving among them. And what they're doing is they're bringing all that in, and Paul's going to have to address all of this. If you remember, it's a great example of that, it doesn't, uh, it's not fully covering everything, but I think it gives us the idea. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, uh, the Apostle Paul is uh, ministering and in Philippi, and this is what the people were used to. This is what they would have understood uh, to be spirit-controlled, if you will, or controlled by the God. In, in chapter, Acts 16, 16, it says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us and who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So just get the picture. In this instance, when you read the spirit of divination, think demon. Think unholy angel. Uh, she's able, by the knowledge of a demon, to predict some events. Now, as you know, because we've gone through this, and as we talk about God, angels, and the devil, you understand that the demons don't know the future, and neither does the devil. But they've just been around since creation, so it's important to remember that it knows humans, and it knows the physical laws of the universe, and it's aware of how people act, and it knows what's going on around, and it can move freely and see those things that the Lord has allowed them to move and see. And so uh, in the spirit realm, it can observe, it can influence, and many times do that without detection. So not only can it understand humans, it can influence outcomes spiritually. So there's this whole dynamic going on on the spiritual plane. So this young girl is inhabited by the demon, 
and she's walking around and she's fortune telling, if you will, just telling what's going to happen and, and the people who are her masters are making lots of money because of that. And no doubt she's bringing a bundle to them because of the way they react after Paul takes care of it. Now look at verse 17 and I'll just put it on the screen for you just for time. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now that's true. And there's no way she could have known that necessarily, especially using those words. The demon was aware of what was going on on the spiritual plane. But that's really ticking Paul off, okay? Because here's this person who's an oracle, if you will, somebody who can tell the future, who people would come to and pay to hear what was going to go on, uh, or following them around. And she continued, it says, doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed, so we know he was not happy. Or he's greatly annoyed, just not a little bit annoyed. Okay, so it's okay to be greatly annoyed occasionally, all right? So, uh, and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at the very moment. Now, there was no question in Paul's mind that this wasn't some God giving people wisdom. There was no question in Paul's mind this wasn't an oracle from the gods. The gods weren't involved here. Why? Because in the, in the idol temple, what's the phrase? Nobody is home. Okay, there isn't anybody in there to do that. There isn't any other God. There's only one God, Jehovah. Okay, so she's not telling what the God's saying. The demon is doing this and it's deceiving people. So Paul has no problem. He just said, get out of there and, and out, out, they, out they come in the name of Jesus. So it's not God. It's not a God. It's not a false God. Nobody's home there. Okay, so, but the problem is that this is the kind of thing the Corinthians were used to. This is perhaps what they'd experience, and, and in an even greater degree, depending on where they worshipped. They're used to oracles, they're used to ecstatic speech, they're used to the voice uh, of uh, the golden voice, if you will, uh, of the God at, at the Bacchanalian feast. They're used to Dionysian cult, and they're used to ecstatic expressions of people who are worshipping, and they're saying things that nobody can understand, and supposedly they're spiritual. They're used to that, they've seen this, okay, they know that they can come and ask a question of the oracle in the temple, and they can answer a question. So they're very used to this type of worship. And that's their perception of spiritual gifts. So to set the stage, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given. And with the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit to the individual believer at salvation comes unique gifts that we just talked about just a moment ago, given to a redeemed person. They work in harmony with other spiritual gifts, given to the other believers to benefit the body of Christ, to edify the church, and to make the Holy Spirit known. So it's given at salvation, these gifts. As the Holy Spirit comes, he gives these gifts and it edifies the church. And Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So, we understand the background. We understand what happened at Pentecost. We understand the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we fast forward to the church in Corinth. And all these gifts, and we'll talk about them specifically later, are there because Paul says you don't lack in any gift. But you have all these gifts and the background of paganism and what they're used to hearing in the temple and all the things that have fallen on their ears and they come into this service together and what you have is what? You just have chaos. They're used to a lot of people ecstatic, speaking ecstatically at the same time. They're used to people asking the God for wisdom and hearing an oracle talk. They're used to the golden voice of the God in the Bacchanalian feast. Somebody just all of a sudden starts speaking some weird speech, and they're like, oh, okay, he's, he's, you know, he's been inhabited by the God. The God's talking. We can't understand him, of course, but the God's talking. So no doubt you probably have some who would claim to have a spiritual gift, but actually were imposters and deceivers. And they're just in there doing what they did in the temple. 
And no doubt you probably have some who might be unhappy with the gifts that they'd received and really envying those whom they regarded as uh, had gifts that were more highly favored or ones they would have rather had. And you probably have some who were all puffed up and they make a showy display of some extraordinary power that they now have. And then you have, right in the middle of all that, you have people with actual gifts, uh, remembering Paul's teaching from before and using them correctly and looking around them and thinking, what in the world's going on? And so they write a letter or they send an emissary and they ask Paul, hey, what is supposed to be happening here? We know the Holy Spirit's come. We know we have, Holy, we have gifts from him and everybody has some and you said that we have it to the full. But what in the world are we supposed to be doing inside this assembly? Because it's a mess. And I guess that's to be expected with so many prideful, carnal people. You just throw that in the mix and people self-centered and, and, you know, and they're doing what they want and they, they desire to exercise their gift and they're all doing it at the same time. So to correct this mess, he takes this chapter and two others and he addresses all the issues which ha- he's been made aware of. And you get into chapter 14 and it talks about what women are supposed to do. They've received spiritual gifts, but where are they allowed to exercise them? And we touched on that just briefly, but now you have the setting. Just chaos in the church, everybody doing what they want. Paul says, this is how it's supposed to look, and this is what it's supposed to sound like, and this is the order it's supposed to be in. And so he's going to be really specific. We'll move into chapter 13, and we'll find out what gifts no longer are in play. And we'll move into chapter 14, and he'll say, and if this thing is going on, this is what has to happen. And if you're in the assembly together, this is who's allowed to speak, and this who isn't. And so he's just going to lay it all out for them. They're asking, what's it supposed to look like? And so he's going to, he's going to put it down there for them. Now look back at verse 1 if you will, chapter 12, and we'll just kind of work through in our time remaining, uh, just verse by verse. Paul says this. And I'll, I'll leave that up there for a second. I know you're probably looking for that, and I'm sorry that didn't flood in. <clears throat> but turn back to verse 1. And Paul says this. He says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now, there's two key words here, and that's, that's our habit, to pick out the key words and make sure that we understand them, because around them really center all the rest of the things that we see uh, in the sentence. So let's look at them. The, worst one is, the first one is spiritual. It's a Greek adjective, pneumatikos. It's a word gift is not in the original. It's been added for clarification. Literally, it can be translated this, concerning those things related to the spirit or something like concerning, concerning spirituals, if you will. It's not exactly a one-to-one, but the idea there is, and the word gift has been added because it's implied, but you'll see why in just a second. And the second important word is unaware. Agnoeo, that's a Greek verb, very important word. It's where we get our word agnostic, to not know. Okay, so concerning spirituals, or concerning uh, those things related to the spirit, brethren, I don't want you to be one who doesn't know. Now, that Greek uh, verb is in present active infinitive, which means Paul doesn't want them to continue in what is currently the case of not knowing about the issues concerning things related to the Spirit. So the current case there in Corinth is they have no idea what they're doing. Okay? I'm sure some do, but the majority of what's going on in there is a bunch of confusion. Paul says, I don't want that to continue to be the case for you. Concerning spirituals, I want you, brethren, not to be unaware. I want you to know. So that really sets the stage for everything he's about to say. I'm going to fill in all the gaps here about spiritual things. And what we're going to see is that Paul will use that word pneumaticos when he wants to emphasize the Holy Spirit. And he's going to use the word charisma when he wants to stress the gift. And we're going to see it exchanging back and forth as Paul works his way through here. Charisma is implied in this first verse. And we actually see it in verse 4. Look at verse 4 if you would. So charisma is implied now concerning spiritual 
gifts. That's implied in, the, in verse 1, but you see it in verse 4. Now look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of charisma, gifts, but the same spirit. That's pneuma. That's the noun referring to the Holy Spirit. So there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Pneumaticos is really a broader term than the gifts themselves, though it includes them. It includes spiritual things, what's going on in the spirit, the true spirit at work in the church. And it appears to primarily refer to the people who are spiritual. Now, we've got a couple of verses we've already looked at that kind of help clarify that for us. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 through chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, we looked at that, and here it is. It just kind of goes back and forth. You can kind of see that this word pneumaticos is referring to people. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. So, obviously, talking about a spirit-controlled person, an individual. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And then chapter 3, verse 1, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as, here it is again, spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So, so to their questions for Paul here in chapter 12, are dealing with really the marks of a spiritual believer. What does it look like to be spiritual? Which is one of the questions kind of we posed as we see Paul's answer. That's obviously what they're asking. What does it look like to be spirit-controlled? What does it look like to be spiritual? What does it mean to have a spiritual gift that's working correctly inside the church? And as we've seen before, uh, just obviously, a spiritual believer is a believer under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, it just seems to be, you know, really straightforward. But that's really the essence of the question. What does that look like? What does it look like to be spirit-controlled? So as a spiritual believer, is a believer under the control of the Holy Spirit, as compared with one who is under the control of his or her own flesh, right? And isn't that the, really the point of Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul delineates that and says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Paul's speaking to believers here also, instructing them to walk by the Spirit as opposed to walking by the flesh, which results in an outcome you won't like. So, he obviously says a, a spirit-controlled person is one controlled by the Holy Spirit, as opposed to being controlled by the flesh. And it's not always obvious what's going on there. And that's the problem that's in 1 Corinthians 12. So, verse 1 says, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to not know. I want you to, under, I want you to understand this subject. Why? Three things. This is important. This is why Paul is going to take some time and make sure that we understand and the church understands what's going on. Number one, this is what we're going to see. And once again, we're just kind of laying foundation here this morning, and we'll dig into the passage more in depth next week, Lord willing. Number one, okay, I don't want you to be ignorant. Number one, the church won't work without the Holy Spirit. There's no power, there's no effectiveness, there's no fruit, there's no conviction, there's no learning, and all the other things that the Holy Spirit does, it won't work apart from the Holy Spirit. So you need to know, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual things. Okay, so the church won't work without the Holy Spirit. It's just a club. The Holy Spirit's quenched. It's just a social club. And everybody has some fun, but it's not accomplishing its mission. Number two, the church can't function as a church without spiritual gifts. Because the Holy Spirit works through those gifts to animate the body of Christ, which we just saw, didn't we? So we read through chapter 12. The Holy Spirit's gifts animate the body of Christ. And each member of the body of Christ does what it can do. And it's been given that by the Lord. And it's supposed to function. And it can't function correctly without spiritual uh, gifts at work inside the body. And number three, 
The church can be fooled by imitation spiritual gifts because their background was in paganism and they were used to ecstatic utterances and they were used to the word of the oracle and they just kind of believed that wholeheartedly. It can be a problem inside the church. The ex- Here's the thing, okay? The experiences that they had is not what it should be based on. It wasn't sufficient to give them the understanding that they needed to determine true from false. Their past experience didn't give them that discernment. So they needed to know what to look for, and they were smart enough to ask that question. What do we look for? What's it supposed to look like? So Paul's going to start at the beginning. He's going to work his way through, and, and here are some handholds, if you will, as we kind of call them, that kind of help us uh, understand what's going to go on through these three chapters. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Paul's going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to do as much cross-referencing as we can so you can have a very firm grasp of this. It tends to be very problematic, even in the modern church. And so I want you to know why you believe what you believe and, and uh, what the background is so we can understand what goes on perhaps modern, in modern times which was what was going on in ancient times. And we can kind of see some of this. So we're going to kind of work it through this way. I won't put it up there yet. I'll just, as we get to this part, I'll give you that as a heading. But we're going to see, first of all, the test of the Spirit. Paul's going to say, okay, if you want to start out, here's how we're going to evaluate it, okay? Whatever gift is at work, we're going to evaluate it a certain way. Now, tongues is obviously on Paul's mind. And we see it all the way through these three chapters. So we know that the tongues, the true gift, and tongues, the false gift, are both on Paul's mind. They're both being exercised in the church. He's going to correct these things. And so here's the thing. To test the Spirit, Paul says, we're going to give you some criteria. And that's really verses 1 through 3. Number two, the gifts of the Spirit. So Paul's going to kind of lay out, not an exhaustive list, but lay out what those gifts really look like and what they are. And then we'll, what we'll do is kind of fill those in, what that gift, act, how it's defined uh, in the scriptures, and, and kind of see how that works. Number three, the unity of the Spirit, which really starts in verse 12 and goes through verse 27. So in, this, in spite of the various gifts that are there, in spite of the various parts of the body that are at work, there's a great unity because it is the body of Christ under the head of Christ. Okay? And then number four, we're going to see the variety of the Spirit. So we're going to see a lot of different things really all the way to the end of the chapter, chapter 12. And number five, we're going to see the love of the Spirit, which that's going to, that's going to moderate everything that goes on, regardless of what, what spiritual gift you have. If it's not administered through love, then it's nothing. So Paul's going to give the primary thing that has to be there. And that takes us really all the way through about the end of chapter 13. And then the last thing is the priorities of the Spirit. So Paul's going to give a list of priorities as he says, now that you have all these gifts, you understand how they're supposed to work, and you understand uh, what they're supposed to look like, and that they have to be administered in love, regardless of what they are then I'm going to tell you how the service needs to go. And this can go on, and this can't go on. Even in the true gift, these things can happen, these things can't happen. And so Paul's just going to clarify all that by giving the priority of the Holy Spirit as he functions inside the church body. So that kind of gives you an idea, okay? The test of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the unity, the variety, the love, and the priority of the Spirit. And so we'll look through all of those things. All right, now, look back at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, if you would. Paul says this, he's going to get right into it. This is our test, this is the test of the Spirit. Paul's going to say, this is how you can determine at the beginning what's actually going on here. Some things that litmus test, if you will, that can tell you if this is of the Spirit. You know, he says, verse 2, that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, that's, that's an ungrammatical sentence. It's very hard to translate that sentence. But the idea here is, he's just going to clarify the indicators that a person is under control when the indwelling Spirit of God is there. What are the indicators? Okay? And so basically he's going to say, you know, you, you, you led us straight to mute idols however you were led. So in whatever direction you were led, whatever idol it was, uh, whatever you were told to do, 
whatever you were, whatever you saw happening, and whatever that was, that's your experience. Okay, it's just re, he's just relying on their memory, recent memory of being in an idol's temple, just like he did in chapter nine and chapter ten. That hey, you know what? You know what happens at these pagan feasts, and you know you're having communion with the god, even though there's no god there, and you don't want people to look at you and think, oh, he's having communion with this god. And so Paul says, listen, you know what that looked like. You remember how you were led. You remember what happened when you went to the mute idols. There's nobody home, but you were still talking and you were still listening. And that was all the case. And that's what he's referring to. You remember that. You know, he says. Common knowledge. When you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So he's going to take that former experience as idolaters and contrast it to their present experience as Christians. Okay, you see that? So he's going to just say, you know how it was. He's going to contrast that. And the idea expressed here is that they were led astray to the idols. The verb is often used of leading away a prisoner or a condemned person. That's the idea. You were led astray. And so the idea there is the pagans are seen then not as men freely following the gods of their intellects that they fully approved. Okay, this must be the true God, Apollo. So this must be, you know, Bacchus must be true and we must worship him. It wasn't that they've determined that, but instead they were led astray under constraint, if you will. People who know, know better. That's every false religion up until today. They know no better. They haven't worked their way through all the gods and finally got to this one. They're led astray however they were led. Okay? You didn't understand what you were doing, Paul says. You were fooled and you just did whatever. Whether it was the voice of Bacchus or the utterings of Dionysius, they just followed along and they did it and they didn't understand and it was done in the name of an idol and they couldn't say anything and, it, and the idol couldn't do anything but they were, did it in the name of the idol. And Paul's point is this that they were helplessly led astray to do things for a mute idol, and it made no sense, but they did it over and over. Whatever they did, they did it to different idols over and over again. And they were just carried along that way, without their control, not with a mental ascent, if you will, not with determining this is the one, just they were carried captive away to do these things. And the point implied by contrast here, listen, the spirit doesn't work that way. That's the point. Paul says, you know, you know when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So principle number one, the gift of the Spirit, do not mimic pagan worship practices of their past, which made no sense. You're not carried along mindlessly to do something, okay? Get that in your mind, he said, right away. If that's what's going on in your assembly, that's not what's supposed to be going on, because that's what goes on in pagan idols, and you're not pagan. And the Holy Spirit doesn't carry you along mindlessly to have you do whatever you do. Okay? That, that's the point by contrast. That's what you used to do, he says. Of course, implied in the principles is that, you know, if that's what you're doing now, and they were, then that's not of the Spirit. And when he says when you were pagans, he just reminds them that they aren't there in that life anymore. Okay? That's not, who def that's not what defines them. Now look at verse 3. Therefore, okay, because that's the case, because... The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way, okay? The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. It doesn't carry you along mindlessly. Here's, here's the second principle that we can look at, okay? Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And that's very important. That's a very important principle. And I really like how the Holy Spirit kind of crafted this whole service. Most of Alex's uh, most of Alex's hymns talked about the centrality of Christ. We're going to see the centrality of Christ that has to be there in the exhibition of the gift. Of course, Paul's speaking mostly of tongues, but he's talking about any other gift. And the, here's the point. Whether 
it's, he's speaking a word of knowledge that he indicates in verse 8, or the gift of prophecy that we see in verse 10, or, or, or the gift of tongues from verse 10. He's just making this point in connection to their former experiences. Just because, and here's the thing, just because somebody's enthusiastic, uttering some ecstatic uttering, or saying some words in the church, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're spiritual. Okay, just because they're being carried along to do some certain thing, like they did in the pagan temple, perhaps you think, well, this is not pagan, he's really spiritual. Okay, if, if you're not being carried along mindlessly, because you can't do that, because that's not compatible with your new life, then if they're going to speak, and just because they're doing it enthusiastically, it doesn't necessarily mean they're spiritual. Just because they say this comes from God, doesn't mean that it does. So Paul's giving them a test they can conduct. First of all, it shouldn't be mindlessly carried away. And secondly, there's this test, this is litmus test that you can make, and the first part is, it's not helpless, it's not out of mind, experiences similar to what they used to go on in their false worship in pagan temples, however they were led. And it goes with this next principle, principle number two, the test of the Spirit. The Corinthians needed to pay attention to what the speaker was saying after they indicated that message was from the Lord. So, you know, this is from the Lord, you know, I'm giving this to you from the it's from the Lord, whatever it is, okay, because what was said about Jesus was especially important. And so that was the test. And Paul obviously knows what's going on there. So you can simply say, listen, listen to what they say. First of all, it shouldn't be some ecstatic utterance that you can't understand because that's what went on in the pagan temple. And you were led along mutely. You, you, you worshipped an idol that wasn't there. And you just kind of said whatever. And you got the voice of Bacchus or whatever it was. Okay? It's not that. And if someone's speaking, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And that just seems obvious, right? I mean... You know, Paul really wants to start with the straightforward stuff, but I think it's a lot deeper than that. Now, the ultimate criterion of the Spirit's activity, here it is, is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Some of the Corinthians are wise enough to know that they can't determine things by the nature of the experience. Okay, just because it looks spiritual doesn't mean it is spiritual. The content is the most important part. And Paul is going to come back to this point numerous times in a number of different ways. The content is the thing. We get to chapter 14, he's going to talk about the content. We're going to speak 10 words in a known tongue, then 10,000 words in an ecstatic utterance, which gives no one any benefit at all. Okay? Now, Paul starts here. And there's this large ripple effect around this statement by Paul, and I want to kind of take some of it in. As it, goes, it can go a number of directions here. We're going to explore some of them briefly and some of them later. But in this format... The Holy Spirit is, catch this, beloved, because this seems to be the opposite of what goes on in many churches today. In this format, the Holy Spirit is at the edge, and Jesus is at the center. In this format, Paul says. And the spiritual gifts, in particular for Paul, the gift of tongues, must center on Jesus. Why is that? Well, because when it was first given, who did it center on? At Pentecost. It was given as a sign to the Jews, wasn't it? And who did they tell them about when they came to hear in their own language? Jesus, and they were able to speak in the language of the people who were coming, and they heard the gospel, and they responded to it. So it's about Jesus, see? And that's what tongues has always been about. Listen, the Holy Spirit's at the edge here, Paul says, and Jesus is in the center. And the power of the Holy Spirit has really changed the idolater who was chained to sin and false worship and all that that entailed. And now, the new believer can declare the lordship of Jesus. It's no mere mindless recitation. It's no learned behavior. 
He says that no one can declare him sovereign without the Spirit being active, and no one who has the Spirit will declare that Jesus isn't all he claims to be and that God has declared him to be and is therefore a liar and doomed to destruction. So either way, you can make a test. What does the speech center on? That's your test. So Paul knows what's going on. He knows they're carried away in ecstatic utterance. He knows that's not supposed to be there. He says, listen, you don't do what you did when you, you worship new idols. And secondly, listen closely, because the Spirit is at the edge and Jesus is in the middle. Now, you know where we're going with this because you read 1 Corinthians, but it appears that some in Corinth claimed that the test of the Spirit was tongue speaking. And we kind of indicated that that's one of the answers we're going to get. You know, how do you know you're spiritual? And people would exalt a language ability, and as if that was the spiritual test to really truly being saved and controlled by the Holy Spirit. But here Paul says really two things. First, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer isn't a mindless speaking and uttering unintelligible things. That's not, that's not the Spirit. Okay? And second, the real test, regardless of whatever the show may be, that establishes what's happening is spiritual, is the confession that Jesus is Lord. The assembly of members who, who make that confession is that body where the Spirit is active, which is what Jim just said. Confessing Jesus as Lord is the test, isn't it? That's the test. And those who do that, they are truly believers. Those are Christians. That's where the Spirit of God is active. So the Spirit of God has freed idolaters, and they can understand and speak the opposite of what they used to express, and that's Jesus is the ruler of God's world. See, they used to say that Bacchus was, or that Apollos was, or Dionysus was, or whatever. But they don't say that anymore. Why? Because they've been converted. And so whatever gift is given is going to center on Jesus and the gospel. Now, just to quickly shore that up for you, this is not new teaching uh, in the New Testament here. We have that same instruction from the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And this is, this is given from God to the Jews who are coming into the promised land. Now, here's what's going on. They've got a number of people speaking on behalf of God, and a number of people saying, this is what God wants you to know. And so the Lord just gives the Hebrews some understanding so that they can be discerning, just like Paul is doing here. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer dreams, uh, of dreams rises among you and gives you a sign or, or a wonder, so they do some kind of miracle or whatever among you, now you, you can't really tell by the experience where it's coming from, okay? Uh, because there's whole, all kinds of influences on, on people. And just like we saw uh, the slave girl there that was following around Paul and irritating but no end, and he's like, get out of here. But she was, she was declaring, you know, what was going on, and she could be, somebody could approach her, and they could tell her what the future was and all that stuff. So they do some wonder. And the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you've not known. So he gives you a sign, and it happens, and he says, now let's go chase after another god, because I just did this sign, and you should, you know, you should follow and let us serve him, serve them, verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, if he said, no matter what he does, if what he says doesn't focus on the Lord God, what? Don't listen to him. And besides, I'm just testing you to make sure that you truly are faithful to me. Now, Deuteronomy 18 has a very similar passage. We'll look at that quickly and we're going to close. But here's the, here's the thing about a prophet. Okay, so here's a prophet. Somebody's going to come and he's going to speak the word of the Lord in, in such a way as to uh, perhaps to say something's going to happen, which is more of the marginal definition of prophet, or 
really tell what the Lord has said, which is more of the mainline way that we describe a prophet. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So listen, if I haven't told him to say this, and he says it, and we see in other places, if it doesn't come true, you just kill him, all right, because he's false. Um, or if he speaks in the name of another god, right there, he disqualifies him, okay? And then he says, you may say in your heart, now here, here's exactly what the Corinthians are saying, okay? You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How in the world are we going to know if this word is from the Lord or not? And then he says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So, in other words, if he speaks, it doesn't matter what he says, if it doesn't come true, or if it isn't true, forget it, because it's not from the Lord. But I, the idea there, that which really uh, captured my attention as well, I wanted to use this as an illustration, is they had the exact same question that the Corinthians had. How do we know what's spiritual? It's the same questions being asked today in many churches. How do we know if this is spiritual? There's tens of thousands of followers of all kinds of false teachers. And there, many of them are asking, how do we know if this is spiritual? How do we know if what he's saying is really what the Lord says? And so we give, we're given some very important principles here, and we'll get a, a bunch more as we work our way through. And in Corinth, you know, the spiritual ones are asking that question. How can we know if this person is spirit-controlled? How can we know if what's going on is actually the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer? Because we have all this back this background in all this false worship. And we didn't know that wasn't a true God speaking. We just followed it along. And we don't want to fall in there again now. And you'll know, Paul says, because it doesn't act like it used to, like what you used to do. It's not mindless. You're not carried along captive. And secondly, you'll know because of the centrality of the message of Jesus' lordship. You're going to know because you, the thing proclaims Jesus. His point was that inspired utterance as such doesn't indicate that the Holy Spirit is leading a person. And when I say inspired, I say it with quotation marks. Inspired utterance, whatever it may be, whatever's going on. That doesn't automatically indicate that the Holy Spirit is leading that person. The Corinthians were caught up with ecstatic utterances and speaking in tongues and words of knowledge and prophecies. And those who could do that were considered the most spiritual. But there's some discerning people there. and They go to Paul and say, is this really spiritual? And how can we know if it's spiritual or not? And catch this. Paul says the most spiritual are the ones who glorify Jesus. Okay? The Holy Spirit is on the edge, Jesus is in the middle, and Jesus is the one who's being proclaimed. If the prophet is saying something that's not glorifying Jesus, that's not bringing the centrality of the gospel to the forefront, particularly as it relates to tongues, and Paul says, and you know that person is not spiritual, because the, the, the sign of true tongues was originally given to what? As a sign to the Jew that God was at work, and it was given in a known language, and people could understand what they were saying, and they gave out the gospel. So very important principles that we lay this foundation of what's going on in the background of the, of the Corinthian church and how that moves into the forefront as Paul gives the instruction. And just as a footnote as we finish up our, our really introduction to this three-chapter section, when you see that word, Jesus is Lord, okay? No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord. Lord is rendered in the same way as Yahweh in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And I think that's important. That meaning of the word appears in Exodus 3.14 to be the unchanging, eternal, self-existent God. The I am that I am, if you will. The tetragrammaton, the unspoken word that refers to Jehovah God. So no one without the Holy Spirit can say Jesus is Lord. So if he's proclaiming, or they are proclaiming Jesus as Lord, 
then, the Holy Spirit has enabled them to do that. And this, the word Jesus, of course, just indicates the historical person known by that name, the one who was born of the Virgin Mary. To say that Jesus is Lord is to acknowledge that that person is God manifest, as Jim said minutes ago in his scripture reading, in the flesh. So not only is he Yahweh, he's manifested in the flesh. Now, when Paul says that, he just means that no man can make this acknowledgement but by the Holy Spirit. Now, that, of course, does not mean that no one can ever utter those words unless a special divine influence. Somebody can say that, but it means that no one can truly believe and openly confess that Jesus is God manifested in the flesh unless the Holy Spirit has given him that understanding. That becomes some of the test as they listen to what is said that will weed out many of those who are currently at work in the Corinthian church. Obviously, Paul gives these two things very simple, but that must have been enough to get started. And so right away, they can come back to the, to the assembly and they can say, okay, Listen, he's just going on and on about this or that. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It's not magnifying Jesus. Yahweh come in human flesh. It's not talking about any of that stuff. That's not spiritual because the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus. Remember what Jesus said about Peter's open confession. This is very common, okay? Um, let's go to this next one. Matthew 16, 15, he says, He said to them, speaking to his disciples, you know this passage, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There's no way Simon could have known that, except uh, Father in heaven by the Holy Spirit, of course, doing that instruction. We see the same thing in John's instructions in 1 John 4, 2. It says, By this... You know that the Spirit of God, know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So once again, Jesus Christ come in human flesh, God manifested on earth, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So if they're going on and on in the church, and they're confessing Jesus is from God, and they're talking about all kinds of other things, recognize that that's not because the gifts are made to edify the church and primarily. They exalt the person of Jesus Christ. That's the spirit of the Antichrist, he says, if you're not doing that, of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. The person of the Antichrist is going to come, but those who uh, follow this principle of not confessing Jesus in the flesh are those who are paving the way, if you will, for the false kingdom. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. According to Pliny, I'll just give you this just quickly. To blaspheme Christ, maldictere Christo was the form of renouncing Christianity before the Roman tribunals. So to renounce Christ in that way was to say he wasn't everything he said he is. And on the other side, to say I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God was a way of affirming salvation. And so you got both sides there, and Paul takes them both in. Philip the Ethiopian and the Ethiopian from Acts 8.35, you remember this. Philip is coming there, he sees the Ethiopian, he's reading, he doesn't understand. It's a really fantastic illustration. And the Ethiopian says, he says, do you need somebody to explain? He goes, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I unless somebody tells me? Philip's like, well, I'm glad you asked. And hops up in there with him and he says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Of everything he could have taught about, what did he teach about? He manifested Christ. Christ was at the center of the message, Okay. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water! Obviously, Philip had talked about what? 
being baptized. Okay, hey, there's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How do we know, he's, how do we know it's spiritual? Well, because there's no way you can utter that and understand it and confess it to be true unless the Holy Spirit is there and active. Philip's like, hey, great, stop the chariot. We're good. And he says he ordered the chariot to stop and both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So to be a believer, you have to confess Jesus as Lord. Confess through the mouth and your heart, Romans 10, 9 and 10. So, it would just follow then when Paul tells the Corinthians how to begin to discriminate spiritual and unspiritual things in the form of spiritual gifts in the church, it would include that confession, wouldn't it? So if they want to know who is really manifesting the gifts of the Spirit and who is false, they need to start with that criteria. Now, we're out of time, so we're going to find out what was going on in Corinth as related to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their use, and was, it was exactly opposite of what's supposed to be happening. So as we get into here, we're going to see it's just a mess. And there's a whole bunch of people not manifesting and proclaiming Jesus Christ, but just proclaiming themselves and edifying themselves and trying to look spiritual and all the stuff that still goes on today. Okay? But we see what that background, what's the background of all that? That's the background is paganism. See, the background is being carried along mindlessly. Paul says that's not how it's supposed to be. All right? The Holy Spirit is given to you, and he brings you along, and he manifests the gifts, and the Holy Spirit is on the periphery, and Jesus is in the center. Okay. Now, we're all going to see some principles here, and, uh, and we're going to see why that's going on in many churches and also the opposite uh, of what was supposed to be happening. So we'll, we'll, make some, we'll bring some of that right to the forefront and hopefully clarify a position for you, help you understand why those things are to be. And the background, I think, helps us do that tremendously as we get the context of the passage. Now, let's, uh, and, I, and I, would, I guess I don't apologize, but you know, you know how it is when you, when you bring a message, sometimes you're preaching, and I had this question not too long ago, what, what's the difference between a preacher and a teacher? And, and I guess preacher is more of an application of the, of the passage. Making, and, and some passages tend to be more that way. There's a lot of spiritual application. There's a lot of this is what you need to do, this is what you don't need to do, and all that. And some is, is very centered around teaching and proclaiming the actual truth of the scripture, the doctrine, if you will, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. And the doctrine would be, okay, what's true? And this was one of those. Okay, this is one of those. There was some preaching in there, but a lot of teaching. So just kind of switch hats and just stick with me, all right? Because that's kind of how it's going to go. We're going to define what the words mean and then make some application, and we'll go back and forth with all of that, all right? Let's close in prayer. We'll have a few announcements at the end, and then we'll have an opportunity uh, to greet each other, look around, find a new face, make sure if you haven't greeted them yet, make sure they feel welcome if you would. Lord, we thank you today for time in your word. We're grateful to you uh, for the clarity of the Holy Spirit as he brings this message to us by Paul's hand. Lord, we're thankful that you uh, carried them along. Thank you that even in Corinth there were uh, the difficulties that were there so we could be informed and we could have preventive medicine, if you will, uh, to keep us from going uh, the directions that some of these Corinthians did. And we also have corrective, if you will, so that we can know if we're wrong to fix it. And Lord, we just thank you that your Holy Spirit does that through your word regularly. I pray, Father, too, for me, that uh, you'll just strike from the mind of these beloved that anything that I have said that didn't align perfectly with what your word says, and I say that often privately, but I say it publicly today, that you know what your, your people need, you know the message they need to hear, you know where we are in the word, and under no circumstances do I want to hijack any certain portion of scripture, Father, and, and make it say uh, something that I want to emphasize, even if it's consistent with what your word says, but instead your Holy Spirit carries along at the pace you want us to go 
and in the direction you wish us to go and to hear the things from your Holy Spirit and not from Kurt Parker. And so we pray this, all these things, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who we glorify and look forward to seeing and wait patiently for a return. Help us to be found faithful, to be witnessing, and to be loving you with all of our heart. We give you praise today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.